and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. After Monday's state funeral for the Queen, attended by the world's presidents and prime ministers, monarchs and media, the official period of mourning is over. Normal politics has resumed. Except it doesn't feel all that normal. Vladimir Putin, who was very much not invited on Monday, is threatening nuclear war. Again. And against that worrying backdrop, the government is gearing up for what is in all but name a budget, and the Labour Party is set to gather in Liverpool for its annual conference. Meanwhile, Liz Truss, whose first days as Prime Minister were, it's safe to say, without hyperbole unprecedented, has been taking her first steps on the global stage at a major UN gathering. We're going to be discussing all of that, as well as looking at a recent IFG report on what governments need to do if they want to ensure they deliver their priorities. That being, of course, what governments should want to do and what Liz Truss has made much of her ability to do. Joining me in the studio is IFG Programme Director Alex Thomas. Hi, Alex. Hi, Anna. And I'm delighted to be joined too for her IFG podcast debut by Aisha Hazarika, Times Radio presenter, political columnist for The Eye and The Standard and a former advisor to Labour leader Ed Miliband. Hi, Aisha. How are you? Hello, I'm very excited to be on this excellent podcast. I love it. So it's a great honour to be part of it. Well, it's great to have you. So before we get on to this week's politics, can I ask about Monday? Aisha, you were broadcasting throughout the funeral, I think. How was that experience? What stood out for you from it? Well, it was an extraordinary thing to have played a a small part in. I had done a, a lot of broadcasting with ITN and then I was working with an American network, CBS News. And it was actually really interesting seeing how the Americans were covering this day. I mean, they were just doing wall to wall coverage. And um, but what was, I think, interesting in terms of the, the, the way the British media covered it compared to the way the American media covered it was that with the British coverage, there was sort of one view, and that's an understandable view. There was a lot of deference, a lot of affection, a lot of warmth for the late Queen and, and the royal family. What was interesting with the American networks is that there was a bit more space to start having some more complicated conversations about the challenges that would be facing the royal family in the in the future. But on the whole, it was it was an incredible privilege to be part of it, an incredible um media operation and to all the organizers i know we like to slag off civil servants and things like that but my goodness all the civil servants all the public officials did an absolutely stunning job and uh, the whole thing was very moving it was and it was as you say remarkably seamless wasn't it i mean you know just not a not a step was put wrong as far as we could tell I was actually in a room full of very top level royal historians. And when the final bit got uh, Windsor Castle, when the the pallbearers were were carrying the coffin up the very, very steep steps, even these hardened hacks were gasping because it was, you know, it was high wire and it was incredibly impressive. It was. Alex, I have to ask you, you queued in the queue and, (laughs) and made it to Westminster Hall. What was that experience like? 
I did. It was. I mean, it was. It was quite a surreal day because uh, I had this strange day on Wednesday. It was my husband's uh, a, a big birthday. I won't say uh, which one. Uh, <laughs> you can check my Twitter account, I suspect, and, and find out. Um, so it, it, we had this uh, day of um, sort of celebrating that and having a few drinks and uh, seeing uh, a few friends on the Wednesday. And then he was insistent that that night we would go and join the queue. So we joined it at one o'clock in the morning at about London Bridge, and this was sort of fairly early days. Um, but I would distinguish it into two. I mean, there's the queue and then there's the Westminster Hall. The queue was a sort of affirmative collective experience. It was quite good fun. People were talking to each other. I had some of Nick's birthday cake that I was trying to push onto various people um, sort of in front of and behind us. You know, Colin the Caterpillar um, was being uh, distributed. Um, uh, and that, and that, was a, that was affirming in one sense. And then uh, coming into Westminster Hall, and this is okay, the sort of, you know, uh, former civil servant person who's, person who's interested in these things. I didn't feel there wasn't a sense of kind of grief or uh, or, or sadness. Uh, really, it was more the kind of intensity of the occasion. Seeing the Queen's coffin with the royal standard on it, um, the orb, the scepter, the crown uh, was just so resonant of the you know the state, the the literal crown in Parliament in Westminster Hall, which is a uh, a sort of uh, you know very. Uh, impressive uh, building, a uh, room sort of space at the at the best of times. So it was quite yes, it was a, it was it was a very interesting sort of eight or nine hours. Let's start with Liz Truss, treading the world stage, making policy announcements, and kickstarting what she would call a new age of economic growth. Aisha, what do you make of this week's frenetic activity, which has uh, started since the morning period was over? Well, I think frenetic is 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 the right word. I mean, there's just so much um, that's that's come out. Um, I mean, some of it we were expecting from hints given out during the leadership contest, particularly around um, not going ahead with the increase to national insurance and to corporation tax. But there's so much of it which I think has really, really shocked people. But particularly, obviously, the 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 bankers' bonuses is is going to be like a, a big um, flare gun issue now. Of course, there's there's um, uh, an idea about um, cutting stamp duty. But I think the thing that has taken everybody aback is not so much the individual policies of of which there are many, which merit lots of scrutiny. It's the big, broad brush ideology, which I think has been quite breathtaking for for a lot of people because. To go back to what is unashamed, pure, true blue, you know, trickle down economics. It doesn't matter if the rich um, get richer while the poor get poorer. In fact, that's that's being said with a great deal of confidence and a great deal of pride and that that's a good thing. I think that's quite extraordinary. And I think that we're going to be seeing this very interesting return to real real differences in terms of economic ideology between Labour and the Conservative Party. I mean, there's lots of of questions about how all of these policies are are going to work. I think in terms of the broad political framing, I do think about what Liz Truss said in one of her interviews, which is, look, I'm prepared to be quite unpopular on this stuff. Now, you could say, look, be careful for what you wish for. But I think the trap that they think they are trying to set for for the Labour Party is that we're going to talk about cutting, cutting, cutting tax. When we go into the next election, are you really wanting to go in with an election pledge that says, hey, we're the people that are going to really, really raise tax? Now, 
There's a second conversation about where the public are in terms of raising taxes. But I think the political calculation is that they want to frame the next election as we are going to cut your taxes, Labour are going to increase your taxes. And it just depends what happens to the economic indicators in the meantime. Yeah. One one thing, it, it has been, you mentioned scrutiny, it has been very weird, hasn't it, that we've had, as you say, possibly some of the, the biggest, most significant sort of changes of, of direction in a way, sort of ideological shifts um, from Liz Truss at a time when everything keeps getting overshadowed by external events. And we haven't really had much scrutiny yet of these in, in a way that you normally would expect. And we're about to have a so-called fiscal event, you know, what any, in any other situation would certainly be thought of as a budget. Um just as uh, the House of Commons is rising to go off for for party conferences, um, it feels quite uncomfortable to me. Yeah, I mean the the lack of the lack of scrutiny and just the well the kind of extraordinary set of of, of circumstances that has surrounded Liz Truss's accession to to being the the new Prime Minister. I mean. We were all waiting for the for the energy package, and of course, everything was overshadowed by the news of the Queen being ill, and then of course the Queen's um, death. And I mean, I spoke to a lot of commentators during that time, political commentators, saying, you know, did did they think that the the, the events sort of would ultimately help or hinder Liz Truss's new government? And I mean, the majority of people I spoke to, and I think I've got some sympathy with this view said that because of all of these events, it did give Liz Truss breathing space, but it did also allow her and her team to to not face the the level of robust scrutiny that, that you would normally see. So I think we've had an extraordinary set of circumstances, but it has allowed there to be less scrutiny and the timing, of course, going into to, to recess, but also the way in which these things have been announced yes they have been announced in in the house but there hasn't been a a sufficient level of, of proper sort of debate afterwards i did wonder if liz truss might have put in um have done a, a kind of press conference um to at number 10s almost almost evoking the sort of covid press conferences and at least when we had them there was quite a lot of opportunity for the media to then come back and test and scrutinise and, and, and you know, stress test um, some of these ideas. But we just haven't really, we haven't had that. And because we're going straight into the party conference season, there's a very different type of, you know, media rhythm to those uh, party conferences. People will be more kind of looking at the bigger politics rather than the, the pernickety details of, of these announcements. And Alex, Obviously, Truss has been off to the UN in New York. The main top line that seemed to sort of emerge from that really is the her downplaying of the likelihood of a US trade deal. Yes, and uh, that's not terribly surprising. I mean, I think she's partly managing expectations there, but also partly reflecting reality. I mean, frankly, since even before uh, Biden came in as US president, you know, it seemed fairly unlikely, although the Trump administration was making more positive noises. But certainly since Biden came in and looking at the uh, nature of the US Congress, which would have to approve any trade deal, it's never seemed very likely. Uh, and also it would take, you know, it would take immense sort of political skill and capital to reconcile the 
British public to some of the trade-offs that would be needed as part of any trade deal with the US. We would be opening up our agriculture sector to uh, and our sort of food production sector to enormous headwinds that would that would come from uh, the you know the hormone beef and all the other things that people talk about in terms of, terms of trade deals. So this felt like a kind of recognition of reality, and to that extent, is also perhaps an interesting straw in the wind about how Liz Truss is choosing to position herself and some of these things. Let's you know, let's focus on growth. Let's focus on the tax cuts and the things that she wants to prioritise and is trying to, dare I say, get rid of some uh, barnacles from uh, her boat. She hasn't got too long until the next election. And she, yeah, I agree. She's She needs to prioritise. And and I'm not going to dwell on the fiscal event um, because uh, you might well be listening after it's been held. But Alex, I just wanted to ask you about the the, the lack of any OBR forecasts um, ahead, ahead of that. Do you think that matters? Yeah, it does matter. And our colleague Ollie Bartram has uh, written ab- about this. I think it it matters obviously because it helps. You know, you were talking about scru- with Aisha was talking about scrutiny a moment ago. It helps the media, the public, Parliament scrutinise the decisions that are being made. Some sort of huge decisions that are uh, are being made. It, it it matters because reliable external forecasts are. Um, you know, very uh, useful as well for projecting forward. I mean, the OBR doesn't get it right um, uh, the whole time or indeed much of the time, but they get it more right than the Treasury used to do when forecasts were in-house and were perhaps subject to more pressure. But I think the reason it really matters is what Truss and the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng need uh, is credibility with the financial markets. They need the pound not to be going through the floor. Uh, And so it surprises me a little bit that they're not uh, hugging a bit closer some of these mechanisms that have been developed to enhance their credibility. And so they can say, we are tra- taking these trade-offs seriously. We're going to go for growth. We're going to um, pursue tax cuts. Um, but it gives them more solid ground with the markets because if they lose the faith of the markets, then they're stuffed. Because the original rationale was that the ABR wouldn't have time. They wanted to move so quickly um, and, and have a have a fiscal event. The ABR wouldn't have time to for- forecast, but the ABR has been quite clear that they would have been able to do it, haven't they? Yes, and Mel Stride, the chair of the Treasury Select Committee, has been stirring the pot a bit on on that. I mean, there was some suggestion he was a Rishi Sunak supporter, so he was doing it in a uh, partisan way through the prism of the Tory leadership contest. But actually, I think it's perfectly legitimate for the Treasury Select Committee to say, look, we're supposed to be scrutinising all of this. OBR, can you help us? And the OBR, um, you know, interestingly, for the dynamics inside um, uh, uh, government and, and, and between the Treasury and the OBR, um, has said, yes, we, you know, we're happy to do that. I mean, I, all this said, I do think we could we can slightly over overplay this. I think the confidence thing is important, but that the OBR will be doing forecasts. They're legally obliged to do two a year, I think. Um, so this will all kind of work its way out. So it's it's more a question of short term credibility for me than it is some sort of you know huge attack on the um, uh, on the, on the underpinning uh, sort of scrutiny of, um, of 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 government. But that that depends how things play out over the coming months and years. Indeed. Let's end with a subject that we all wish we didn't have to think about, um, nuclear war. Aisha, do you think Truss has an advantage in handling this sort of situation, having been a former foreign secretary? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that definitely, you know, will will help her. And I think it's, you know, she she did a, you know, a reasonable job as um, foreign secretary and it probably helped her when the the, the Russian uh, foreign minister, you know, laid in to her as well. So I think she's you know, she's she's definitely got some recent experience of, of being tough with 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 the Russians. And actually, that's quite a 
it's it's not an easy situation because the situation is horrendous, but it's not like being tough against the Russians is a contested position. She has complete cross-party support. The public supports her on this. The whole of the Conservative yeah. Party supports her on this. There's international um, solidarity for, for, for the position. Um, so, you know, I think I think she can it could, she can be quite straightforward about her position, but it is. It is incredibly worrying seeing the the developments that have have happened, and I was just struck by um, a conversation I had with a, an ambassador, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, even a week or so ago, when we were all feeling quite, you know, heartened by the fact that Ukraine was fighting back, and he did make the very important point about, look, you know, we've got to be very careful about our own optimism bias on this. We want there to be a happy ending for Ukraine, of course, we all do. But he did urge a very wise caution, which was don't underestimate President Putin's ability to just continue to, to sink to new lows. One bit of processology, Hannah, as we're, as we're the IFG, is that it was less noticed than Liz Truss and Kwasi-Gwarteng sacking Tom Scholar, the um, Treasury Permanent Secretary. But very, very, very early on in that first day or two of the new government, um, they moved Stephen Lovegrove, who was the National Security Advisor, and replaced him with Tim Barrow. Um, interesting in this context, because... Uh, Tim Barrow was our ambassador to Russia. Before that, he was an ambassador to Ukraine. Um, he has sort of expertise in in this. So, uh, for all the some of the anxiety around civil service moves and uh, sackings, uh, Tim Barrow has the you know has has been there and got the t shirt on on some of this. And so, uh, him as national security advisor is a you know, was an interesting choice for for Truss, and uh, obviously uh, signifies the amount of attention that's going on this uh, at the top of government. Okay, let's move on to look at the Labour conference. Aisha, what would a good conference look like for Keir Starmer? So I think people have um, felt that Keir Starmer has done quite a solid job in terms of stabilising the the Labour Party, um, getting the Labour Party in better shape. He's promoted reasonably good people to the shadow cabinet. He's done a lot of work to to try and tackle the the anti-Semitism and, and sort of sort of get the the party back on a more professional footing, and I think people would say that you know the polls are are, are moving in the right direction, and you know he's had some good performances on attacking the government on things like Partygate, and there have been some good points of differentiation, particularly around the the windfall tax. But 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 but. I think the big test for Keir Starmer at this conference is for people to come away after his conference speech and have more of a sense of what it is that he stands for. What is Starmerism? What would Britain look like under a Keir Starmer government? And what is his political mission right now? I think that that's the question that still feels quite unanswered. But do you think that uh, as everything we've been talking about in terms of the new trust government um, has actually helped, will actually help him in that there's a clearer, um, quite um, sort of strong agenda for him to define himself against now? Or, or is it problematic to be having the conference at this point because the detail of the government's policies just haven't quite emerged yet? Well, it's interesting. Lots of the conversations I've had with senior um, Labour figures they're, they are grappling over how to frame the attack on, on Liz, Gov- Liz Truss's new government. 
the urge is to see this is a huge lurch to the right. And certainly as, as more policies tumble out, there's plenty of evidence to support that that might be a good place to, to, to land on. But it still feels very, very early days. You know, we're not even three weeks into this this new government. So I think I think the strategists and the sort of people trying to shape the message in the Labour Party are in a way thinking, great, there's lots of things we sh- we should easily be able to define ourselves against. Um, you know, you're all going to be right wing. We're not going to be we're not going to be that. But I think, again, that the, the, the challenge is you can't just win by defining yourself against somebody else. You also have to promulgate an argument about what you are for. And we've seen the beginnings of some of that. We saw last year Rachel Reeves making this big commitment about um, turbo boosting the green economy. And I suspect there'll be much more of an emphasis on on green and, and that's going to be a big thing. But I think there's still there is still work to do in terms of what is the sort of positive What's the kind of emotional positive that you do want people to to start connecting with? Yeah, because you need people to have something to vote for, not just against, as you say. Alex, what's your thinking on this? Yeah, I think it's um, uh, it's very interesting. I think that I was struck by what Aisha said earlier uh, in the previous section about um, the sort of position that the trust government might want to go into the next election about sort of positioning the Labour Party as against tax cuts and uh, uh, and in favour of tax rises. And there's been this sort of debate about the extent to which whether whether Truss is opening up political space for the Labour Party or not. And so the, the argument that it's going to be very tricky for Labour to tackle the Truss government is that sort of tax cuts one, they're kind of closing down ground. <clears throat> the alternative view, I'll be interested in what Aisha thinks about it, is, um, uh, is that they're opening up all this space because uh the uh trust administration will be saying uh we can spend all this money we've got all this headroom whether they do or they don't see what the obr says about it but we can use that for tax cuts whereas labor can then say it it it, it sets the ground for labor to say well what we really need to do is use that to invest in public services to invest in um uh, in uh, uh in in net zero and uh, a, a green economy so there's a uh, there's there's an interesting uncertainty i think we don't i i don't quite have a fix on the direction it's it's going to go in mm. the the um sort of commonality is that interesting i was i was looking earlier at um uh, keir starmer's speech from a thousand years ago or july um on <laughs> his economic policy and he was talking there you know blair like he was saying i've got three priorities growth growth and growth and that matches a lot of what we're hearing from Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss at the moment. So whether Labour can frame the sort of growth on our terms, a more kind of corporatist growth, a more sort of German-style growth, dare I say, and set that against a Singaporean or a free market um, trickle-down uh, theory of growth that the uh, that, that the government is is setting out, it would be, be very interesting. But anyway, I'd love to know what Aisha thinks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I, I um, on the growth thing, I do find it extraordinary that it's like, you know, the year is 2022. And, you know, we've had quite a tough time since the global financial crisis. And people are going, do you know what we should, has anyone thought about growth? I don't know if anyone's thought about <laughs> it. I think it's just made me laugh a lot. Um, but in terms of um, how Labour and the Tories kind of differ on that, I, I do think that's a really interesting point. I was speaking to a senior Labour politician um, just yesterday and we were discussing like how Labour 
you know, can navigate this? Because what the Conservative Party have been really into, and I know this from painful experience, having advised uh, many, many Labour leaders, is that they they like setting a, a kind of long term economic trap. Um, and I think this one is going to be taxed. That's my kind of sense. But you are right, because Liz Truss is doing, you know, huge levels of state intervention and huge amounts of borrowing, that then does change the orthodoxy about borrowing. Because I would remember in the, for example, the the run up to the 2010 general election campaign, the run up to the 2015 general election campaign, you know, borrowing was like a dirty word. You know, you nobody was allowed to borrow. Borrowing was bad. Well, that narrative has now changed. That orthodoxy has now changed. And I think that's where Labour does have an opportunity to kind of own the, the the borrowing narrative. How are you going to borrow? Are you going to borrow? Who are you going to borrow for? Are you going to uh, borrow for, for social good? Are you going to borrow to invest in the future, to, to shore up these things that will lead to growth and, and greater productivity? And also, there's an attack line to be framed as well, which is, if you're going to to borrow, but you're going to make future generations pay for it, or you're going to make the the, the poor and, and the sort of you know the, the average person kind of pay for it. You're reducing the bandwidth for for the things you can borrow for. Um, whereas if you were doing a windfall tax and, and things like that, you 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 can argue you increase the bandwidth for borrowing for good things for for nuclear mm. for infrastructure for the, all the leveling up stuff. So I think there is an interesting battleground around borrowing and sort of kind of busting the myth that went around for a long time that borrowing was bad because we are in a very very different space now and if you know, we haven't there's been so much going on we haven't talked about it but the um you know, a, 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 a focus this week on the government as well on the health service and nhs announcements and gp appointment times and and, and so on and the, the risk i suppose uh building on what aisha says is that the government's saying stuff about that but the service is not actually getting better because what the services really need is more money um and uh that 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 then plays out as the kind of political pendulum swings uh towards the next next election and uh, the government's kind of found found wanting on what it's uh, what it's saying but not necessarily doing on uh, public services generally yeah it's an interesting point Aisha there are always subplots at conference what do you think we should be looking out for so I think that the subplot is going to be around um industrial action and relationships with the the trade unions and things like common ownership as well I do think that that's going to be uh, an area which is going to be ripe for uh, a lot of conflict and a lot of uh, division. There's a large part of the the Labour Party that you know is feeling very fired up by you know the the, the very good work that has been done by the trade unions in terms of raising uh, pay and the squeeze on on pay. But I think um, that's where I think there's going to be. I think that you, there could be some serious fireworks over those kinds of issues at conference. That's a very interesting point. Okay, I want to go back to uh, Liz Truss's government now um, and her promise that it's going to be all about delivery. Uh, we've got a new IFG report out, uh, which sets out how a government can go about getting delivery right and looks at something called outcome delivery plans. This is the IFG podcast, so it's pretty wonky. 
Um, and a little techie, but don't switch off. <laughs> this is really important, and we're going to explain why. Uh, Rhys Klein, who's an IFG researcher and uh, uh, author of this report, joins us now. Hi, Rhys. Hi, Hannah. So, Rhys, we're going to do some quickfire questions for you to uh, keep this snappy. What is an outcome delivery plan? They are reports published or agreed by each government department each year setting out their plans for the year ahead. So how they're going to use their budgets and their staff to achieve their objectives and how their performance will be uh, evaluated. And when were these introduced? They're quite young. They were introduced in 2021. We've had two rounds of them now, one of which has been published, one of which has remained internal to government. And is going to be published or is just not uh, it does not look like it, no. Okay. And what did they replace? They replaced the uh, equally thrillingly titled Single Departmental Plans, uh, which were trying to do a similar thing, but which had several problems. Uh, they didn't quite manage to bridge the financial management of departments from the Treasury and wider government performance. And they didn't quite lead to the brokering between departments that they were aiming for, which meant they tended to be sort of written and forgotten. So do we think ODPs, outcome delivery plans, their successes are a good thing? Yes, in short, they are a good thing. They are far from perfect, and our report lists several ways in which we think that they could be improved, from the sorts of metrics that are included to track uh, performance to the way that performance is reported and coordinated across government, and the need for much, much greater transparency in the system, much too much is uh, secret at the moment. But that said, they are absolutely a marked improvement on what came before. They are helping to bridge the sort of finance with the wider uh, uh, government performance. They're helping to root these conversations in sort of real world impact of policy. Um, and they have the potential to improve the evaluation of that policy. So government is doing a good thing. What is the problem? Why have we been writing about this? The problem is that the Prime Minister and Chancellor have an important decision to make. Uh, we think the government is working towards a spending review, likely towards the end of the year. Um, before then, they will need to decide whether to stick with this approach or to tear it up and start again. And new governments often tend to tear it up and start again. So the uh, New Labour in the late 90s, the coalition, the Cameron majority all disp disbanded the uh, predecessor performance frameworks and tried to create their new approach. What we're arguing is that doing that would be a mistake and that instead uh, uh, Truss and her team should use the existing framework to try to guide the delivery of their priorities in what little time they have left before the next election. And one of the things, just coming quickly, one of the things, Reese is probably being too discreet uh, in uh, being properly discreet in, in saying, but um, uh, I'll go a bit further, is that we were picking up sort of whispers in the wind even before the trust government that there were uh, sceptics at ministerial level about um, these outcome delivery plans in uh, inside government, and there was a move to, uh, to to shift away from from them already. So one of the things we're saying is, please, 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 if you're serious about delivery, don't do that. I improve them, evolve them, but don't just scrap them. Aisha, you've uh, watched a lot of government, and we've, we've talked a lot today about the tendency to wish to reinvent the wheel. Do you think that's what's uh, likely to be going on here? Absolutely. I mean, having been uh, a civil servant for a long time before becoming a special advisor in government, so having seen you know delivery from a civil servant point of view and from a political point of view, 
I do think one of the things which is incredibly frustrating for, for actual proper delivery is just constantly changing the goalposts, constantly, uh, as you were just seeing, sort of tearing everything down and try to, trying to reinvent the wheel constantly. I think in terms of delivery, the, the metrics on which you deliver something are not actually that complicated. You can tweak things and you can argue that things could be sort of modified slightly. But, you know, delivery is actually not that hard. Well, delivery is hard, clearly. But sort of measuring delivery should be reasonably straightforward. And I do think that constantly changing these plans just is, I think, a real distraction. And it's quite a a diversion from actually doing the doing, which is how you get delivery. And how the man in the street, woman in the street sees anything actually changing. So Alex, you were a civil servant too. What was your experience of performance frameworks in government? It, it mirrors a bit of what Reese was saying uh, earlier. I think, I mean, I, I was, uh, for my sins, you know, uh, involved in uh, in responding to some of the single departmental plans, the SDPs, the predecessors to these outcome plans. And I certainly agree with what Reese was saying about some of the problems. I mean, remember, I was a policy director uh, writing my bit of the SDP, and really, the the task I ended up doing was was finding text that was sufficiently kind of loose and banal to reflect what we were doing anyway. But I I never felt they really drove uh, what we were trying to do, uh, set a clear objective, or held me or my ministers to account for what we were trying to achieve. So I think the, the absolutely right that that um, a big effort's been put into tightening those up because the SDPs weren't really uh, working. The, the other reflection, the other experience was going back to, I mean, Aisha's time as a special advisor, um, uh, the um, Blair and Brown governments had uh, something called public service agreements, PSAs, so another three-letter uh, acronym. The thing that P- PSAs were quite good at doing, I think, was was uh, tackling the cross-departmental um, difficulties. They weren't always so good at holding departments and uh, ministers and civil servants to account, but they did force around a few key priorities, people to focus on problems, you know, child poverty or things that, that cut across uh, uh, different government departments. And so they were one of the ways, you know, favourite subject of the IFG about kind of breaking down the barriers between departments and focusing on problems from a kind of citizen's point of view rather than from the Whitehall machinery point of view. And we do we have a clear sense of, of why ministers don't like ODPs, what it is that they're objecting to? Well, we've heard a, a few things. I mean, there's some sense that uh, some ministers didn't see their own priorities for their departments reflected in what can be quite bureaucratic language of the priority outcomes. That's of what course, Alex used to frame. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. And uh, of course, politics changes fast. So there's also the need for them to be flexible and and, and change as priorities uh, adapt. Um, And I think finally, there's also a sense in some quarters that the actual sort of process by which departments would report the data to the centre and and get feedback remained quite sort of stubborn and uh, not flexible to the needs of, of ministers. Also, I think there's there's always a tension in government. Reese talked about transparency, and it's um, you know easy to sit here at the IFG and quite rightly say should be more um, more transparent and more information available. But there's jeopardy there for ministers, isn't there? Because if you're saying we're going to achieve X, Y, and Z by this date, and then you don't do it, 
uh, you're uh, giving the public, the media, a stick to beat you with. So I think, uh, you know, a brave and confident minister will come out and say, we are going to do this, and they'll set some uh, measurable metrics by which they're going to uh, uh, do what they say they're going to do. But there's risk there. And I think you need to recognise that uh, that there there is always going to be a tension between, uh, um, between ministers being open and being very clear about what they want to achieve and how, and providing, as I say, a stick to, uh, to beat them up with. And just to add to that, I think that is why we, we say in the report that one of the important things for these plans is to be realistic about what government can and cannot achieve and to recognise the limits of their own control. They do tend to be quite uh, sort of straightforwardly minded about, you know, government using its money to achieve a particular outcome in a very straightforward way, which rarely uh, uh, sort of proves to be what happens in practice. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Alex Thomas, Rhys Klein and Aisha Hazarika. Brilliant to have you with us. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, where you can find our recent In Conversation event with award-winning BBC documentary maker Michael Cockrell. We'll be at Labour Conference too. If you're there, come and say hello and do drop in on our great programme of events. And as ever, keep an eye on our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our latest analysis. See you next week, ideally without threats of nuclear war echoing in the background.